Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira, and much more. Alhamdulillah, nahmadu wa nasa'inu wa nastaghfiru wa nu'minu bihi wa natawakkalu alayhi wa na'udhu billahi min shuroori anfusina wa min sayyati amalina man yahdi allahu falamudillalah wa man yudlul falahadiyalah wa ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika lah wa ashhadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh amma ba'd inshallah uh, today we will start our uh, third lecture on the subject of the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and uh, we'll continue from where we left off last week. Last week uh, we were discussing uh, the the kind of religions that existed in the time prior to Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam in Jaziratul Arab, uh, and uh, <coughs> we. We understood uh, quite a few things about uh, the condition of uh, of the Arab Arabs at that time, that uh, the way they were worshiping and the kind of uh, uh, kind of a things or the uh, uh, kind of uh, relationships different tribes had, and the uh, geographical location of the Jaziratul Arab, uh, where it's located, and uh, different. Uh, Races among the Arabs that uh, that existed before Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So today we'll continue on uh, on the same subject and we'll cover a few things about the social life that existed uh, prior to Islam and a little bit about the economic uh, life and uh, ethical life as well. When it comes to the social life. Uh, uh, we find uh, among the Arabs uh, at that time that uh, there's a discrepancy between the different classes. For example, the noble in the noble classes, you find the women had a lot of rights. They uh, they had free will to do many things. Like even we see, even prior to Islam, uh, Khadija anha, the wife of Rasulullah she was a very well-off businesswoman. And uh, uh, similarly, uh, other women who were from the higher class, uh, they had a lot of freedom to do, and uh, they were cherishing the life. Uh, and uh, but at, at the same time, when we look at the other classes within the Arab society, uh, whether it's the middle class or the women who were slaves or or the lower class, we find uh, a lot of uh, different kinds of issues that existed at that time. And one of the hadith uh, uh, of Aisha uh, ta'ala anha, that uh, is mentioned in Bukhari, and uh, uh, we will see that this hadith is actually reported by Aisha anha, the wife of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Even though it is reported in Bukhari, this is not the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, as we discussed in the very first lecture. When we say hadith. Hadith does not necessarily mean that it is the saying of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam always, sure. and even in Sahih al-Bukhari, 
when we read the, the book uh, books, uh, the book that gives the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu the very same book also has a hadith from the Sahaba as well. Okay, what I mean by what it means by that is when we say hadith of Rasulullah, what it means by that is this hadith is hadith marfu'. Meaning it goes back to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his sayings, his actions, and if an action was done in front of him, he approved of an action that is considered as part of the wahi. But if the hadith that goes back to a sahabi, the hadith is called mawquf, or in, it depends on the muhaddith or the different scholars of the hadith, some of them refer to that also as athar as well. But the categorically, if you look at it, this is called mawquf. And even besides the Sahaba sayings, there's few of them even tabi'in saying as well. And those are hadith are called, and tabi'in, when we say tabi'i, uh, a tabi'i is a person who saw, uh, who, who, who accompanied the Sahaba, who did not see the Rasulullah who saw the generation of Sahaba or uh, lived with them. Now that generation, the second generation after the Sahaba, the tabi'i, so some of the hadith are mentioned in Bukhari even, which are the sayings of uh, the tabi'in. And those hadith are called maqtu'. So there are three categories, marfu', mawquf, and maqtu'. So here the hadith I'm talking about, this hadith is by Aisha radiallahu anha, the wife of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and she is mentioning something, not saying that this is from Rasulullah sallallahu As the hadith goes like this, and this hadith is from an ibn Shahab, qala akhbarni urwa bin Zubair. So Ibn Shahab is saying that he heard from Urwa bin Zubair from Aisha radiallahu anha, zawja nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, akhbaratuhu. And she is the one who told him. Okay? So, anna nikah fil jahiliya. So she's saying about that the nikah or the marriage in jahiliya kana ala arbada anhai that there were four kinds of four types of marriages at that time. For nikahun minha, nikahun nasil yom. And the, the, the first, marriage, first the marriage that is mentioned in the hadith is the marriage that we do today. Okay? Meaning in Islam. Yahtabur rajulu ila rajuli waliyatahu awebnatahu fayasudhuha thumma yankihuha. So here a man will approach another man who either his wali meaning the guardian of the girl or the father of the girl and ask for her hand for the marriage. So that's the marriage that was acceptable that is today even. This is the way the marriage is acceptable. Now, the other kind of a marriage that existed, which is the hadith goes on and says the second marriage, which is also called nikah istibda. Now, this is a uh, the marriage in which a man is married to a woman and when she is done with her menstruation period and he has not approached her yet, he used to send his wife to somebody else to sleep with and he will stay away from his own wife until she would get pregnant with the other guy. Once she is pregnant, now it's up to him whether he sleeps or may not sleep with her. But the child will born from the other guy, not the husband. Okay? And that, that nikah is called nikah istibda. 
Now, what was the logic behind them for them? This was more of a, a lower class person sending his wife to a man of higher status or an elite. So this way, the blood of the elite will come into the family. Okay? Uh, remember, we talked about this. Why we are discussing the pre-Islamic era? So we can seek two things. Number one, we understand the situation Rasulullah came. Okay? And how he changed the society. So we can analyze today's society as well. And to understand that the society can change again as well. Okay, so here the things that we are going to study in even this today's session, we can see each one of them, unfortunately, exist either exactly the same way or in a similar manner. So we know that the tri in the tribal system, the lineage and which family you belong to is a very big thing. And this is exactly they were after when they were sending their wife to a person who is from a higher tribe. So the, uh, a better blood can come into the family. If you recall, a similar kind of a things were happening here as well. In the West. When they were talking about, they still talk about this, of uh, getting the sperm and the eggs of the people they consider as the elites in a sense, or the one with, which has higher status, or the one they look up to, so they can get beautiful babies, or highly intelligent babies. So the things that they think as a high status, they're after that no matter where they come from. So in a, in, in a sense, they are on the same footsteps of the Jahiliyyah. Because once a person does not follow the commands of Allah Azza wa Jal, by default, he is following the commands of the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And let's not be mistaken that whenever we talk about the commands of Allah Azza wa Jal, we only talk about the uh, spirituality or something. No, commands of Allah comprise of everything that we do in our life, including the marriage. Okay? Now, so this was the second kind of a marriage. And we can see the similarity here. Third kind of a marriage used to happen in the Jahiliyyah. So I'm going to use the term Jahiliyyah from now on so it be easier. So we know what it means. It means the era prior to Rasulullah came as a prophet and the people who were living uh, according to things other than Islam. Okay. So the third kind of a marriage that existed that Aisha is mentioning in this hadith in Sahih Bukhari, uh, mentioned in Sahih Bukhari, that... Uh, a woman will, will uh, she will be sleeping with less than 10 men. And once she gets pregnant, she will just point to the guy, whoever she feels like, and she will say, he's the father. And they, they, he has no choice but to accept the fatherhood of their child. The fourth kind of a marriage was she, a woman will sleep with as many men she can. And she, would have, she used to have a flag outside the house to point, uh, to point that she's available. She's almost, if you want to call it, a whore or prostitute. 
and she's sleeping with many men as much as she can, when she gets get pregnant, then she would get a person who's good at telling, recognizing the people that who the child belongs to now, just by the facial features or whatsoever. And uh, she, would, uh, uh, she would decide who's the father, and now the father has no choice, and then he becomes the father of the child. Very similar things that we've seen, whether they call it marriage today or not, but the, bearing the child is happening in a similar manner. There are many cases that we find in which that, of course, we're not talking about among, uh, this is not Islam that approves of Islam, does not approve of any of that stuff that is mentioned here. But in, in the society which is void of Islam, you, you find things like this. The mother does not even know who the father is. So instead of going to a person who will recognize by the facial feature, they go for the DNA test. And the analyst will tell you who the father is. She does not even know who the father is. So, when it comes to the jahiliyyah, we are back to the similar things. Nothing in that sense. As a matter of fact, it has got worse and worse. And uh, uh, if, if you, uh, like for example, I've been to some uh, doctor's office or somewhere you go and you're sitting in the waiting area, you see the TV is going and in the morning time normally strange shows are going on there in which they're trying to figure out who the father is. And they bring in sometime 10 guys and they find out none of them send were the father. So, let's see, this sounds funny, but the issue is, it is when you leave, when you're not with, when you don't find the command of Allah Azza wa Jal, you fall into the same kind of a trap of the shaitan that people fell into in the past and the history has been repeating now, today as well. So that his, these kind of historical things that we read, that should, rather than give us, uh, make us sad, actually should make us confidence that, look, Islam came in the past and took the people out of the dhulumat from the darknesses into the light of the nur of Islam. Okay, so darknesses can be of many kinds, but the nur, which is the light of Islam, is only one. And Islam is still the same. And when we talk about these things, we should also remember that we understand that the Rasulullah was among the Sahaba that was a great, great blessing to have Prophet among you. Nothing can change that, that the, be having a Prophet among you. But at the same time, Rasulullah left among us something which can do the job of what Islam requires from us, what Allah subhanahu wa requires from us, which is the Quran and Sunnah. So that is preserved by Allah subhanahu wa for us, and Islam is still among us. The change that, brought, that happened among the Muslims, that can still happen. And we will talk about this later on, inshallah, when we are talking, we'll be talking about the life of Rasulullah but I want to just mention a couple of things so we will remember that what it means by that. Look, when Rasulullah brought the da'wah of Islam, when he brought Islam, and he was calling people towards Islam, and the place he was actually doing the da'wah of Islam, which was the Mecca for the first 13 years, people of the Mecca did not really reply, respond to the call of Rasulullah. Individuals responded, but as a society, Meccan society, 
did not reply back to Rasulullah did not respond in the first 13 years. The ones who responded to Rasulullah Sallallahu were the ones who actually came from outside of Mecca. Rasulullah did not approach them. The people from Yathra, the people from Medina, they came and they responded to the call of Rasulullah Sallallahu So it's the call that they responded to. Not a personality. Remember we talked about that. Many of the people of Medina, when Rasulullah Sallallahu went to Medina, they did not even recognize who Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was. So they entered into the folds of Islam because of the message. The thing that changed the people of Medina was the message of Islam. So that message of Islam exists today as well. So I'm not trying to undermine that by any means, for sure, having Rasulullah among us is the best thing that can happen to us. But the thing that changed the people is the message that still exists. And that will continue to exist until the Day of Judgment. <coughs> so that is there. Similarly, even in the last uh, khutbah of the Hajj, Rasulullah wasallam, he mentioned something very important. He said that... Uh, he said that, take this message to the people who are, who are not here, who are not present. They may carry it better than the one who are listening today. This is what Rasulullah said to the Sahaba, the best of the generation. So the message can still be carried if we are men enough to carry it. And maybe we can do certain things better than them. Not talking about the blessing of the Sahaba in, uh, in any manner. Of course, they are more blessed in, uh, in every sense. They are getting the hasanat for everybody who's doing any good deeds uh, until today. Because it's generations to generations to generation that one who passed the Islam were the Sahaba. So their level is much higher in that sense from us, of course. So that was the marriage issue. Now, when we... Uh, besides, the, uh, besides these marriages, there was another way they used to ha- bear the children, which was they used to take the women with them in their wars. And in the battlefields, they used to take them with them. And while they are on the way, they used to sleep with these women. And they used to have children from them, and they used to be the, the progeny or the offspring that came out of that kind of relationship. They used to be, these children used to be considered as disgraceful children. Even though they are their own soldiers' children, and they are the one who took the women with them, but this is how they treated them. This is the society we are trying to understand first, it's just mentioning how the society was. Now, when it comes to the children, uh, the children was, again, was in a, a strange kind of, a, you will see the stories about the children. The one who were the noble families, or some of the other families, they were taking care of the children very well. At the same time, there were others who were burying their daughters alive. And we find uh, uh, many of the uh, stories as, uh, in the hadith and even the Quran talks about that. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in Surah Al-Kuwirat, وَإِذَا الْمَوَدَّةُ سُؤِلَتْ that when the one who has been, uh, the, the, the female ch- child who was buried would, would ask, بِأَيِّ ذَنْبٍ قُتِلَتْ For what, which sin she was, she was killed. 
So when the soul, sorry, when the souls are, or the female, those souls are united, at that time, the, she will ask why she was killed. Because they used to bury their daughters alive for various reasons. The lifestyle they had, or the, they, they had many wars among the tribes. So the girls for them were more of a burden to a point that they used to feel the news of a female child was given, their faces used to turn black as, as if this is something shameful. And of course, Islam condemned all those things. Now, the very same thing we can see today as well. I was just actually reading in uh, CNN, uh, this picture may, you may have seen on the CNN uh, news. Uh, in India, and that news is from October 10th. Uh, it was in Uttar Pradesh. They found in one of the cemeteries, uh, a small girl, new, newly born girl, four day old, baby girl was found buried alive. So somebody came to bury their child and they heard the crying uh, voice of the girl. They were able to dug, dug her up and she was still alive. Why? We are well aware of that. What is happening in India, for example? And not only in India, even China and many other parts of the world today as well. For them, hearing that the birth of a female child is a bad news. And today, and especially in China and India, this incident of bearing a child is one thing. They even do not let them born. After, through the ultrasound, if they find out that the child is going to be born will be a girl, they just actually abort before even the birth. And the very same news was talking about in India, tens of thousands of female fetuses are aborted every year. Tens of thousands. And this number is for sure, I believe, it's a very uh, uh, number which is very, uh, they're showing is a smaller number than what in reality is. Okay, and the similar thing is happening in China. And uh, the ratio of female and male, especially the, 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 among the children, the, is, is, the female the ratio is dropping very, very low now compared to the boys. It's because of the very same thing. And we can see that, that the same thing was happening in the time of Rasulullah wasallam. Now, when it comes to, when we're talking about social life, when it comes to tribal rivalry, uh, the Arabs were, uh, they, they had a Bedouin style living at that time, and they had a huge attachment to their own clan, their own tribe, and they are willing to do anything for the sake of the honor of their own tribe. And uh, when we were driving, I was just telling them, one of the morals they had was this, Support your brother he, if he's a oppressor or oppressed. And I know most of us here, they will say there's a hadith of Rasulullah similar to this. The problem here is for them that meant literally. Because for them it meant 
Your brother is the oppressor or oppressed. You have to help him, support him, whatever he's doing. <coughs> While in the case of Islam, when this hadith Rasulullah said, Sahaba asked Rasulullah that, Ya Rasulullah, we know how to help the brother who is a madloom, who is oppressed. How do we help the one who is a dhalim? In that case, Rasulullah said, you stop him doing the dhulm. That is helping him because you're stopping him doing the munkar. But the kuffar at that time, they were following this model in a literal sense. And they were willing to do anything for the sake of uh, their, their tribe. And we are aware of there were many battles that happened among the tribes of the Arabs, whether it was Mecca or Medina or where else. That uh, like the Harb al-Fujjar or Harb al-Bu'ah, uh, and uh, the, the, many other uh, wars that happened for decades and decades for very silly things because of the tribal uh, ties they have with each other. Any minor thing happened to one of the tribe could be a silly thing as if, uh, if there's a race happen and in the race that the tribe, or lower tribe won the race. So, uh, th- th- this thing existed among uh, the tribal on- uh, on- uh, honor of the tribe and attachment to the tribe and the cl- clan and the family that was very strongly uh, hep- uh, present among the, uh, among the tribes. So in general, if you look at the social uh, situation among the Arabs, you find that, that there was a lot of sick things were there. Things like adultery was common. And uh, even uh, they, they had, uh, they were burying their uh, daughters alive or they were fighting with each other for silly things. But uh, among the, the very bad things that they had, they also had some good things that existed even in the time of the Jahiliya. Okay? Things like, they were very, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, hospitable people. That they're taking care of their duyuf, their, uh, their guests. To a point that even if they have uh, just one she-camel, the whole family is dependent on that. And if a guest comes, if that's all they have, they will slaughter that and feed the, the guest. So this good, these good, good things existed. But for even that goodness, sometimes it was coming along with some bad things. Like for example... Drinking was a very common thing among them. But while they're taking care of the guests, there was part of them that taking care of the guests is that you provide them the best kind of a drink. Best kind of a khamar that you can provide to them. And uh, they will make things for them. For example, gambling. Gambling was another sickness that they had. And they will provide the means of gambling for the guests even. But while they're gambling... They had the thing of whatever money comes out of the gambling, that will, that will go in charity. So they had strange kind of good things coming along with the sickness in the society as well. This is why Allah Azza wa Jal says that about the yas'alunaka anil khamri wal maisar. They ask you about the khamar and maisar, meaning the gambling and, and, and the drinking. Qul fihima ithmun kabir. That they, they tell them that there are. There's, there's a big sin in it. This is what he's talking about. That the, the benefit 
in it is, uh, or, 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 or the, the loss in it is much bigger than the benefit that you are seeing in there. So you can see the benefit, oh, you're taking care of your guest, or you are giving the money to charity after the gambling. But that kind of a goodness is nothing compared to the loss that you're having. Because you're going against the commands of Allah Azza wa Jal here. Okay. Now, other thing besides being taken care of the guest, uh, actually one thing I forgot to mention, which is about uh, the drinking part. Uh, in the Arabi, uh, they were so much into drinking and taking care of the guests with the drinking. There's another term for the, the grape that exists besides the Ainab, which is called Al-Karam. Al-Karam is also that you are being generous to your guests and stuff. So Al-Karam is another word they use for, 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 uh, for grapes, from which they take the, uh, the, the alcohol or the, the khamar uh, wine out. Even uh, one of the drink is called Bintul Karam, the daughter of the, uh, of the Karam. So uh, this, is how, uh, they much, uh, this is how much they were involved into drinking habits. Uh, going back to the other aspects of it, they were famous for keeping their covenants. For, uh, they were so much into that whatever covenant or a promise that they had made, even if they had to lose their lives, they would do so. Because if they had promised somebody that they would, for example, protect some people, or uh, they take care of somebody, or they have given security to some people, they will go to the extent that the whole tribe will support that uh, even if one person has given that, that security to some, somebody outside the tribe, the whole tribe will support him for that. And they will even not be, uh, they will not even care about even if they have to drop their blood also for that. Uh, similarly, they had a sense of honor and reputation in injustice. So, of, of injustice. So in any case, if they see an injustice or something at that time, uh, uh, any kind of a thing that has happened to their honor, they make sure that that have been taken care of and they will protect the honor. They will make sure the justice has prevailed. So this is, even in the Jahiliya, they had some good things. And this, these are the very same good things that we talk, we're talking about and a few more that were actually, they became useful later on when they entered into fold of Islam as well. Um, they were the people uh, who were uh, uh, with firm uh, will and determination. Um, if there's a, a clear objective for them and they, they, they know what needs to be done, they, they will be very firm on that. Uh, they were forbearance uh, uh, and they had mildness and they were pure and simple. They were living pure and simple Bedouin life. So remember we talked about that, that the location of Jaziratul Arab was that it was uh, in a place, it was a barren land, it was desert, and many people uh, from the outside the Jazirat al-Arab, they were not really after this piece of land, so they were left alone in a sense. At the same time, it was an important land also because uh, on the north side, you north and the, uh, and the east, you see the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire was there. And in the south, uh, you, uh, the Arabian Sea was there, which was a uh, waterway for many different places. So it was protected from the urbanization at, at that time. At the same time, uh, it, it has a Bedouin simple life. Uh, and, and at the same time, they were also in a geographically very important location. Uh, 
So when they were living in that kind of a simple life, uh, uh, they, 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 they had the issue of nature of truthfulness and honesty, and uh, they, they, they were detached from all sort of intrigue and uh, treachery kind of, a, uh, kind of attributes. So uh, that's what I'm going to cover about the ethical part, about, about the economics uh, of economics, uh, the life of uh, pre-Islamic era was the, these Bedouins in reality because of the tribal system and as we talked about the way the clans or the tribes and the families were fighting with each other, they were in a state of war many, many times and they did not really have much in economy side. Uh, they did not really have any kind of uh, industry. The only industry that they, they had was about tanning the skin and some sort of a weaving and that was mostly from the people of the Yemen who, were, who used to come and they used to do these kind of things or the one who migrated from Yemen. But, uh, and they were mainly, they used to do some farming and they used to do some trade to north and to the south, to the Syria and Yemen. That, that was the main economic things they used to do and that was only done most of the time well, in those four sacred months that they had. Those four sacred months that we know of that uh, uh, they, they, even before Islam, they agreed upon that they will not be fighting in those four months in general, the Jizriyat uh, Arab people the, of, the, uh, of the Arab at that time. And that protected them to do some sort of a trade. And those four months we know were Dhul-Hajjah, uh, uh, Muharram and Rajab. So uh, these four months they used to use for all sorts of uh, trades. Uh, so, uh, if we talk about, when we talk about the Arabian life from the social perspective, economic perspe- perspective, and ethical perspective, we find that uh, they do have a lot of uh, uh, sick kind of a trades. At the same time, they did have some good things. And those good things, when it comes to when Islam came, it, it helped uh, them to become better Muslim and take Islam to the rest of the world as well. So I'm going to stop here, and if there is any questions or comments on the subject... Thank you for listening to this podcast. Podcasts on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, and Sirah are available at islampodcasts.com, as well as on iTunes. Rate, review, and comment, and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend about islampodcasts.com,